0: Well, good morning everyone. Uh, a couple of weeks ago we started a short uh, series of sermons looking together at places where God meets with someone face to face. And this week we're going to look at God's uh, clandestine visit with our father and mother in the faith, Abraham and Sarah. So I'm going to read from Genesis 18 verses 1 through 15 for us. That's printed in your order of worship so you can follow along there. Uh, You can also follow along in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Genesis 18. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to, to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sillas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk from the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, as we sang just a few minutes ago, um, we ask that you would, by your spirit, make us aware that the risen Jesus is here with us in all of his power. That he is present with us as we listen, as we think about these words that we have read and heard together. And we ask, Father, that you would make us aware of that, that you would lead us to him again, that you would show us your grace to us, Show us the grace that you have given us in him again. Change us by it. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, well, when I was uh, 12 years old, uh, I watched the movie Red Dawn. Uh, it was 1984, um, so now you know how old I am. Uh, Patrick Swayze, Charlie Sheen, Leah Thompson were all in Red Dawn, along with a bunch of other people that nobody ever talks about anymore. Uh, and in the mid to late 80s, I don't think that I knew another boy who had not watched Red Dawn, either with or without his parents' permission. And the opening scene of that movie takes place uh, in a rural high school in a small Colorado town, Um, and the teacher is given a lecture to the class on the military strategies of Genghis Khan. All of the classroom is facing him, and behind them is this big row of windows that they can't see out of. And we can see out of those windows, and this lone paratrooper floats down out of the sky into the field behind the school. So the teacher stops lecturing, slowly walks over to those windows, and that first paratrooper is followed by dozens and dozens of other military paratroopers who land in the field behind the school. And when you see that, your little 12 year old heart starts to race because you know what's happening. The Soviet army is invading the United States. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, why would the Soviet invasion of the United States begin outside of a high school in rural Colorado? And I'm here to tell you that is irrelevant to a 12 year old, completely irrelevant. Especially because five or six of these high schoolers, they escape into the hills above the town. They dub themselves the Wolverines. And for the next 90 minutes, they wage guerrilla warfare against the Soviet Army before they die as heroes. I have to tell you, among the 12-year-old set, uh, in the waning days of the Cold War, After Star Wars, this was the greatest thing that any of us had ever seen. (laughs) We all secretly hoped that we could be Wolverines. So fast forward about eight years. I'm 20 years old. I'm with a bunch of my friends from college, and we are heading out of town for the weekend. We start talking about renting a movie, watching something together, and somehow, amid high fives and shouts of Wolverines, Um, we end up deciding to watch Red Dawn together, which none of us had seen since we were 12 or 13 or 14. And you know what? (laughs) Red Dawn was so bad that we couldn't even finish it. (laughs) It was painful to watch as much of that movie as we did. And you know what else? Red Dawn had not changed one bit. It was the same movie we had seen We were the ones who had changed. And I think some of the pain of that shared experience came from coming to terms with that. What we had once regarded with wonder, what we had once regarded with awe had somehow become drained of that power. And now we set it aside with a dismissive laugh. And church, that same feeling looms heavily Over that wildly beautiful moment in the story that we just read together. When Sarah is eavesdropping on the conversation and she hears the reiteration of a promise and a hope and a dream that she had once held so closely. Here was the promise. Sarah's gonna have a baby. But now too much time had passed. Physically, for sure, too much time had passed. But too much had passed emotionally. And too much had passed for her spiritually. She had given up on that promise long ago. She did not believe that promise anymore. And so she did what we do when we want to kill off hope in our own hearts. She cynically laughs. And world-weary, she mutters to herself, And she spits out a line about old age and pleasure and dead dreams. This is, of course, just a split second before she realizes that she's been eavesdropping on God. And his presence becomes incredibly good news for her. And it is the same for us too, church. So we get the punchline to this story up front uh, because the narrator tells us right in the first line of this story that the Lord appeared to him. That is to Abraham and as we see soon enough also to Sarah um, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent at the heat of the day. And the rest of this passage is just the slow unfolding of what we already know from the very beginning of the story that it is God himself in the form of a man who has shown up that day. He's with two others, presumably who are angels, who also appear like men. this masquerading triumvirate appears during the hottest part of the day while Abraham is trying to get a little shade under the front flap of his tent. It could not be any different than the first time God had appeared to Abraham. If you don't know that story, you can read it later in Genesis 15. There... This dark, foreboding dread falls over Abraham. It's the middle of the night, and the sky gets ripped open by this sight of fire and the smell of smoke, and these things mysteriously make their way through the carcasses of these dead animals, and you realize that's God. Anyone who had been around witnessing that, anyone who had seen that would have fallen on their faces in fear, would have become incontinent. But here, God is just a guy. Just a traveler going from this place to that place. He has hidden himself in the very ordinary, like we saw that he did with Gideon last week outside of that wine press. I don't know why God did that here, why he didn't appear again like he had appeared the first time to Abraham, but I do know that the obscurity of God in ordinary things is something that people like you and I should pay attention to. I mean, if you're familiar with the story of Scripture, you know know that this is certainly not the last time that God comes alongside someone quietly and hidden. And hidden. Psalm 46 has this line that we like to repeat. We tell it to each other. We put it on the front of our greeting cards. The line is, be still and know that I am God. And you hear that and it makes sense to your brain. But the reality is that we often live lives that are given over to endless series of distractions, staring into the devices that are stuck in our hands, always wondering, about what that new thing is that's happening with somebody else we don't know or that's happening with some celebrity that we don't know. Jealously looking at pictures of places where we are not or of people who are with people with whom we are not. Wondering where the good party is. Wondering what a bunch of people we've never met might think about the place that we're going to eat dinner at next week. Trying to suss out what we should say on our social media feed about the latest political news so we don't look so gauche and inept. And on and on it goes in an endless scroll of infinite content. And it's clear. If we spend a lot of time in a life like that, we will miss lots and lots of very ordinary things. Ordinary things that are charged, as the poet Hopkins says, with the grandeur of God. And I know this is true for me, and maybe it's true for you too. Uh, I need to cultivate time and space in my life to simply be still and know God. I need to make more and more space in my life to put away the distractions and just to know that He is I think of that sermon that Pastor Tyler preached in Lent about solitude. Maybe that is what we need more of. Maybe our fear of being alone is an eloquent witness to the fact that we need it. I mean, I'm kidding myself. If I think that I'm going to hear from God, if I don't stop and look and listen for him, I don't see anyone else in my life if I don't stop and look and listen at them. So why would I imagine that I would see God if I don't do those things? So Abraham is just sitting in the heat. He's doing nothing. <laughs> and he sees these guys and he ran to meet them and he bowed before them and he said, hey, don't go any further than my tent. It's not because Abraham somehow knows who these travelers are. He's just extending normal Bedouin hospitality to them. What he asked them to stay for is a little bit of water. Water a little bit of shade under the trees and a morsel to eat. And it is that modest offer that they accept. But then Abraham and Sarah and their household servants prepare a feast of cakes and milk and yogurt and a calf. Abraham brings it out to them. He doesn't even sit with them. He stands by them under the tree while they eat. And they eat and they have their fill, presumably. And then things in this story really get going. Because God asks a question. And we know it's Him because we were told in the first line that it's Him. But Abraham and Sarah, who is hovering back in the tent, do not know that it's God. And here's what God asks Where is Sarah? Your wife? I love it when when God asks questions, because you know that it's not for him. It's not like he's wondering where Sarah is. When he asks questions, they are meant to wake something up in the person that he's asking the question of or in the people who hear it, like us. So God asks three questions in the story. This is the first one. Where is Sarah? Not because he's unsure, but because he needs her attention. You know how it goes. doesn't matter how loud the party is doesn't matter how distracted you are, who you're talking to in the moment. If you hear your name out of one ear, you're definitely going to try to get your ear cleared up to hear what they're saying about you. And now that he has her attention, now that she is listening behind the tent door, God conspicuously drops the bombshell. I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And it's at this point that we realize that while that meal was no doubt a pretty good meal, that was not the reason fully that God was there that day. There is no mistaking it. God is there for Sarah. I mean, Abraham had heard this promise before. Abraham had heard this promise three times before. Abraham had heard this promise first in its biggest, most world-embracing form God says, hey, I'm going to make of you a great nation and in you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And then two more times, Abraham hears the same promise, but with even more specific details about him. That beautiful night under the stars, God says, your very own son, Abraham, your very own son is going to be your heir. And then later, God told him, I am going to give you a son by Sarah. But Sarah, Sarah has never heard this from God before. The very first time that we hear anything about Abraham and Sarah in scripture, it's at the end of Genesis 11, it's a throwaway line at the end of a boring genealogy. This is all that we're told about Abraham and Sarah. They didn't have a child. So it's not hard to imagine, is it the hope, the joy that would have been kindled in Sarah when Abraham first told her about this promise of a child? It's the kind of hope that you would want to steal yourself against. Sarah had been disappointed about it again and again throughout her life, long, long before she had ever heard about this God that they're following around, that they're wandering around after. But it's also the kind of hope that floods in, unbidden, through every crack in your defenses. Even though you put up everything against it, it sneaks in. It snakes its way in. And so sometimes Sarah had dared to dream it. She had dared to hope it. And now years and years have passed and nothing, nothing. Sarah's not dumb. She knows how these things work and she knows that for her it doesn't work. It has never worked and she is convinced, she has determined that it will never work for her. What had been a fond dream has now become this bitter disappointment to her. And to hear this guy outside of her tent, this guy who doesn't even know her talk like this, it's too much. Because what she had once regarded with wonder, what she had once held with awe in her heart, had somehow been drained of that power. And now she sets it aside with a dismissive laugh. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And you know, church, nothing nothing about this is peculiar to Sarah. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we looked at the book of Malachi together. Sometimes I think cynicism is one of the besetting sins of our age. That knowing laugh, that world weary laugh of disaffection and irony is often the sound of our parties. It's the sound of our workplaces. It's the soundtrack of our homes. We do it so much we don't even know why we're doing it anymore, but it's never changed. We sneer and we laugh. Because it is the quickest way to kill off the hopes that our hearts dare to have. It protects us from believing what we really, really, really want to believe. It props up our fantasy, this delusional fantasy that we live under, that we have seen through everything and we have certainly seen through God and he's not really to be trusted. But church, every one of us in here, every single one of us in here has been made by God to know him and to be known intimately by him. Every one of us in here has been made to live life under the beauty of God's gaze. Every one of us in here has been made to live under the healing care that he gives us, to live Under the shine of his sustaining and forgiving grace, we have been made, church, every one of us in here, to live lives of deep meaning, to live lives of deep, deep purpose. We have been made to share life with him. And even the most irreligious here among us, even the one who says, I don't believe any of this stuff, knows sometimes, sometimes, that they are haunted, nagged by this beautiful truth We were made for God. But we look at the broken world around us and we look at our own broken lives and we try to take into account all of the thin and lame and easily deconstructed uh, resources for purpose and meaning that are scattered around in our deeply secular culture. And of course, we just can't put the pieces together. Life doesn't work like it's supposed to work or like we want it to work. And so we kill off any last hope in our hearts the only way that we know how, the quickest way, with the knowing laugh, with the irony, with the disaffected throwaway line. Just like our dear mother in the faith, Sarah. But this... um, quite literally, (laughs) will not be the last laugh. (laughs) This is the whole reason that God is there and it is good news for Sarah and it is good news for us. He has come to graciously meet Sarah in exactly the place where Sarah is. He has come to meet her in her cynicism. He has come to meet her in her unbelief. And so God asks the second question in this story, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? <laughs> and now, you know, as they say, the jig is up, right? Abraham and Sarah realize at once that uh, this is not just some traveler who randomly made his way by their tent that day. And as the wild fear is spreading through every last nerve ending in Sarah's body, God asks the third. The last question of this story, is anything Too hard for the Lord? Church, that question is the whole point of that hot, hasty afternoon meal. (laughs) That question is the reason that God is face-to-face with Sarah. Is anything too hard for me? It's not a complicated question. It just gets a yes. Or a no? It's exactly the question Sarah needs to answer, and it is the question, church, that we need to answer. Here's what it's meant to do. It's meant to shift Sarah from her preoccupation on her own inabilities and her own limited resources to the unlimited abilities and unlimited resources of God. It's just to move her off that one point to another point. Sure, if what you see is all that there is, then the knowing, world-weary laugh makes tons of sense. But if that isn't all that there is, if God is on the scene, if he is face-to-face with his limitless resources, then impossibilities become possible. And it's the same for people like us. The world is broken. It's messed up. Our hearts mirror it because of the choices we have made and the things that have been done to us. And we see straight through all of our these lame offers of meaning that our, our, our culture hands to us. These These incredibly thin attempts at trying to make sense out of life. They don't even make sense on their own, flatly. We see straight through them. If that's all there is, then why not laugh it off? Why not drink it off? Why not distract it away? But if that is not all there is, then everything changes because it means we can be forgiven. It means we can be made new. It means this whole world can be made new. It means that we can share life with God like we have been made for. So this is the gracious question that comes from the God who is face-to-face with Sarah. Is anything too hard for me? And we hear that, and it's not complicated. For me and you, it's either yes or no. To say, yeah, I think it is too hard, God, is to stick with the hope-killing laughter, the world-weariness, the disaffection. But to say, no, I don't think it is, is to enter for the first time. Or like the prodigal, to re-enter into the life of faith. In church, in that life, we do not order our lives around cynical adages. In the life of faith, we do not order our lives around some easily digested piece of ridiculous conventional wisdom. In the life of faith, we order our lives around the gracious life of the God of impossibilities. Is anything too hard for him? Well, the rest of Abraham and Sarah's story, and really, honestly, the whole rest of the story of God and his world, is the answer to that question. Abraham and Sarah, spoiler, have a son. (laughs) They call him Isaac, which means laughter, by the way, of course. And that son is a pointer to the greater son of impossibility who was born not to an older married woman, but to a young frightened girl who's never been with a man a day in her life. And she names him Jesus. That name means God saves, by the way, of course. And it's through Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension that the broken world begins to be remade. It is through his life and death and resurrection and ascension that our sins are forgiven and that we are restored to the life with God for which we have been made. It is through his life and death and resurrection and ascension that things that are impossible are made possible. Is anything too hard for him? I love how the story ends. Sarah. Is like we would be so terrified, and so she dissembles and she says, I, "I didn't laugh." But God does not blow up at her for lying. He knows her frame. He is there for her, and so He responds with a knowing, smiling line of grace. Well, you did laugh, Sarah. He is content to leave it unresolved in the moment because he knows what's next for her. What's next for her is the laughter of unbridled joy at the impossible son who is lying in her arms. Is anything too hard for him? Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would help us to believe this. To believe that the answer is, no, nothing is too hard for you to believe it. Use whatever means you have at your disposal, whatever you need to in our life, to get us to the place where we absolutely believe that's true and live out of the truth of it. Show us preeminently in the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of your Son, that there is absolutely nothing that is too hard for you. That you have reconciled the world to yourself through him. Father, help us to believe that for our good and for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.